0: To Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery. And with me this week in the studio is Dr. Orna Gorolnik, a psychoanalyst and writer, host of the Showtime docuseries, Couples Therapy.
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, very good to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I'm so pleased to, to have you here. I I think about two weeks ago, I was on part of a walking tour of the psychoanalytic history of Manhattan. Unfortunately, I didn't get to stay for the end, so I don't know how it finished, but it was great. And so uh, I'm very pleased to have an actual real-life psychoanalyst in the studio.
1: That is so cool. Uh, you should tell me more about that walking tour. Oh, it's fantastic. Yes, I will try to
0: send you the link afterwards, although I don't suppose there's any reason I can't just name it. It's it's not as if I'm not worried about like offending a sponsor or anything. Um, it was The Psychiatric History of New York from uh, Pure Finder. They're, I guess, a, a company that does various like historical walking tours. And it started in the Carl Schurz park by 87th street. Uh, and it was really, really fantastic.
1: That is so cool. And I, I mean, you can stop me if I'm like intruding, but what, what prompted you to actually take that tour? So,
0: uh, <laughs> it was my wife's birthday weekend and my wife is a professor of literature at UC Berkeley. But she also has a lot of interest in psychoanalytic theory and has, I think, given a few talks at like various psychoanalytic societies. Um, so I, I thought this was something that would be of interest to her uh, and was looking for something to do while her mom was in town. And I sort of thought like walking tours, that feels like a good, you know, in-law activity. And it
1: was. That is great. I love it. The psychoanalysis is definitely having a renaissance. Yeah, it definitely.
0: I Maybe they got into that more in the second half of the tour, but it was very cool we got up to about the 1940s when we had to when we had to leave a little early so that's all I know now okay <laughs> but so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this uh, I know not all of these have anything to do with the couple form but I still feel pretty confident that you're going to be able to bring useful advice and, and and a thoughtful perspective to all of our question askers today so with that said I will go ahead and read our first question and we can dive into it the subject of our first letter is get kiss the girl out of my head I'm a mid-30s straight woman who got divorced last year after 12 years with my horrible ex. I'm so happy and excited for my new life, and I'm looking for dating advice. I asked a guy out. We've been on three dates. They've all been great, and the fourth one is coming up soon. But I'm anxious about initiating a kiss. I've been out of the dating game for 12 years. My previous relationships weren't too healthy and it's left me with a messed up mindset. Basically, in my mind, if he's not forcing himself on me or sexually harassing me, then I believe that he doesn't like me. I know that's completely wrong and I'm trying to correct my thinking. I certainly don't want to pressure him, but I definitely want to try to end our next date with a kiss. I know I should ask with confidence, but I'm afraid I'm either going to appear like an adolescent or a creep. We both live with relatives and haven't been to each other's houses yet, so the fact that the first kiss is most likely going to be either out in a parking lot or in a car doesn't help my confidence either. Any advice is appreciated.
1: Wow. This yeah. is a great way to start a conversation.
0: <laughs> it, it really is. I had, I had been kind of taken aback by that line about if he's not forcing himself on me or sexually harassing me, I think he doesn't like me. And I didn't quite know where to land in terms of how literally the letter writer wanted us to take that like it wasn't clear if if she was sort of saying like i'm used to a certain level of like sexual aggressiveness or if it was genuinely i I don't know that it's difficult for me to distinguish between assault and interest and so i i feel like that's probably the most useful thing to try to figure out before we get started did you have a particular read one way or the other
1: well i agree with you that there's something that there's a certain kind of troublesome electricity to those words mm-hmm. um, that's kind of pulling us into this whole, you know, hashtag me Too giant debate. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe I'm, I will zoom out a little bit and then go right back into this kind of electric few words. But mm-hmm. um, what, what I, you know, when you sent me this letter, when I looked at it earlier this morning, the first thing, Thought I had was, wow, this is such a good example of how everything we do, I mean, especially things like um, romantic relationships, but everything, every gesture is not neutral, it's not independent of its social context.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Meaning there's no way to understand each other's gestures outside of whatever the norms are. For our particular group at a particular time. And I guess this woman is, I mean, she's already kind of declaring that she belongs to a certain kind of social context. She's saying she's straight, Mm -hmm. uh, seemingly cis.
0: Yes, she actually included cis earlier, and I condensed the letter for time. So that was a detail she included.
1: Right. So so there is she is locating herself in a particular kind of milieu or a particular social context, and and she's saying, but she's out of a long relationship. So some time has passed since the first time she was dating, and she's kind of entered a new time in in our collective cultural history. And in a way, she's asking, wait, what are the coordinates now? How do how does one interpret the gesture of a first kiss between a man and a woman, cis man, cis woman in a heterosexual relationship, what is the meaning of a kiss? Like how do we do this? And what is considered in line? What is considered transgressive? How do we interpret this gesture? So, so just to say that like everything we do, we have to frame it in its social discourse and it's interesting when patients or or clients talk to me about these kind of situations sometimes that people want this kind of they're looking for a way for an inter- interpretation from me that will kind of take them out of discourse like let's pretend as if none of that matters can i just be free to do what i want and Of course, we all have the fantasy of that. If there was a world in which you were free to just do what you want, like be spontaneous and and be understood that way. But we're never outside of discourse. We're never outside of whatever social norm we're operating within. And then we have to make decisions. We have to both be very conscious and aware of, What is the meaning of the gesture we're doing within our particular context? And what is our relationship to our, let's say, to the norms of our group? Mm -hmm. Do we want to be completely compliant and part of it? In which case, I don't know, for example, with this woman, I don't know, I'm trying to think like people in their 30s nowadays, straight people in their 30s, I guess it would depend on where they are in America but she probably knows, like in her context, what is a kiss? What's a, what's the norm of a kiss? And does she want to comply with that? If she wants to comply with, with a particular norm, then she knows how it's going to be interpreted. She might be upset that that's how it's interpreted. But if she wants to comply, she knows what it means. And if she wants to take a risk and do something that is somewhat either transgressive or brave or different, great. But she should know what she's doing.
0: Yeah. I was curious too about the inclusion of that detail. I asked a guy out because especially in this context, I wondered if part of the anxiety here was, I've already done the slightly surprising thing, not, not unheard of, obviously, but, but slightly unusual straight move of asking him out. And I wondered if maybe part of the anxiety here was, so if he's not initiating the kiss, am I the person who will be initiating most things? And do I want that? And and I think that's also worth asking oneself. You know, I think if I had been on three dates with someone and I felt like they'd all gone well and and neither of us had made a move, I, I might be sort of curious at this point. Like, are we just both too anxious Uh, Is there less chemistry here than I thought there might be? Is there something that I'm missing? I I would be curious at this point too, I think.
1: Or on some level, do both of them want that kind of dynamic where she's the one initiating and he's the one going along with it? I mean, they might, you know, in their kind of organic, if they weren't, let's say, so limited or framed by norms is that both of their natural rhythms, and it would suit both of them if it went that way. And they they just have to like tolerate the fact that they're living a little bit outside of the total mainstream normative way of behaving. And that's what works for both of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a useful question because I was thinking, on the one hand, if the question is just, I'd like to end our next date with a kiss, I'm willing to bring it up. I'm prepared to bring it up. I just want some sort of advice on how to say it so that I don't sound really stilted or like I'm a teenager on my very first date or or like I'm being abrupt. In which case I feel fairly flexible about, well, you could either say something before the next date um, so that it's not quite so um putting pressure in the moment of I really would like to kiss you on our next date, or you can say it towards the end of the date, just I'd really like to kiss you, or would you like to kiss me, or can I kiss you? Or you can also just if if you feel that you're reading the moment right and you think he's giving you the signal, you also don't have to uh, on a fourth date necessarily ask explicit permission. Right. And you can just try it, but then there's also maybe the other question of is is that sentence about I have a messed up mindset? And I was really curious. I couldn't get a read on how much she wants to correct this versus how much this is maybe a roundabout way of trying to acknowledge a desire she doesn't quite know what to do with. So I could I could have read that in one of two ways, right? One is I have a, a messed up mindset right now that I don't really want. I don't really want to feel, but Unless someone is violating boundaries, I don't believe I'm liked, which is essentially saying there's nothing this guy could do outside of something wrong that would convince me he liked me, which suggests there's something maybe more troubling here. Or I want a guy who is sexually aggressive, who is willing to be dominant, and who is perhaps within healthier, safer confines than my previous relationship, interested and willing to do some kind of like aggressive play with me but I don't know how to bring that up in a way that doesn't make me sound um, off-putting or scary.
1: I see what you're saying. You're you're wondering how much of this, actually there's like play underneath it. It's kind of playful, kind of flirtatious sexual script that she's like toying with, or if this is just kind of a sad comment on... You know, masculinity that that to to be mask one has to put up this kind of aggressive, forceful front. Otherwise, the message doesn't get across. Right. You know, I'm I'm going back to that sentence, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, is it tough to be a man? Yeah, and it's tough for her
0: too because it sounds a little unclear. I could really read this either way. So I suppose my best advice would be, letter writer. To consider, when you think about the, the following two possibilities, which one feels more exciting? One is you ask him to kiss you, and he does. And the other is you ask him whether he would be interested in some sexual aggression, where you would talk about it more beforehand and figure out ways to agree upon parameters. But is what you would like to ask of him controlled aggression? Or is what you would like to ask of him a kiss? you could do both. You could do either. Uh, you could do one and then later the other. I realize if right now you're just wanting to focus on taking things slowly, fourth date kiss, you don't necessarily want someone to bring up the possibility of saying, uh, and how would we proceed safely if I asked you to you know, beat the living shit out of me? Okay. But you can. Uh-huh. You absolutely can. And, and so if that is something that when I say that letter writer lights you up on the inside like a Christmas tree, pay attention to that. And if it doesn't, pay attention to that too.
1: I also want to make a comment about, like, difficulty tolerating the awkwardness and shyness and risk that is in having these kind of gestures and conversations. And I would encourage the writer to just, like, live with the awkwardness. Mm -hmm. Like, why not be feel like appearing like an adolescent? What's wrong with appearing like an adolescent? It's risky. It's risky business for everyone. Anytime you get close to someone for the first time, you're putting your your skin and your heart at risk. Yeah,
0: but it, there's also ways to be a little awkward and it can also be charming and appealing. So letter writer, I don't want you to feel like if you do ask and it comes out a little awkward, that doesn't have to mean it's totally neutralizing or that that ends the moment. But that is, I think, part of the process of getting to know someone new is you will not always appear with maximal finesse and suavity. And that you know, if you frankly are trying to go into a physically, sexually intimate relationship with somebody new, aiming for one hundred percent assuredness, suavity, and finesse is probably a good way to make sure you miss something, or or you don't actually let them get to know you. And so, I I, I think the only other thing is I'll, I'll say is letter writer, I certainly don't think you need to on a fourth date give this guy you know. 100% no holds barred rundown of your previous damaging relationship. But I would say at some point between the first kiss and the first time the two of you might have sex, letting him know a sort of CliffsNotes Notes version of something that you're working on or can, you know, just your, your own ability to feel wanted or to con- misunderstand basic respect or politeness for lack of interest because that would be useful for him to know. Again, really don't feel like you have to give him the notes from your last therapy session or or say everything that you've shared here, but some inkling of something that you're learning or working on or or, uh, struggling with, I think would be useful for him because I think you would not want to surprise him with one day saying you must not really like me because you haven't broken into my house which again letter writer i hope that doesn't feel like i'm trying to make fun of you it's so so clear that you're aware of your own maladaptive thoughts i just um wanted to to say something slightly lighter but again i really understand what it's like to try to work with some some thoughts that you don't exactly welcome but you're also sort of curious like can i eroticize this do you have any other thoughts for her? I feel like that's that's most of what I'd hope to say.
1: No, I think that's
0: good. Yeah, well, and good luck. I think my last thought, actually, I've just come up with one, is I wouldn't worry too much about coming off like a creep. It's a pretty appropriate, a fourth date context asking about kissing. That's pretty appropriate. It's like ordering ice cream at an ice cream store. No one's going to say, what are you doing? This is a library. That's an appropriate topic of conversation. So even if it's an, a slightly uncomfortable moment, you are not being creepy for asking to talk about kissing on a fourth date. You're well within reasonable bounds there. I think this is a good moment to sort of pause and and talk a little bit about how this sort of ranks in terms of your your own work outside of this particular podcast as as a psychoanalyst and, and on couples therapy. I'm just curious, does this feel familiar? Does this feel slightly different from the type of work that you normally do?
1: Um, it's not different in the sense that I work both with individuals and with couples. Um, and obviously relationships is a lot of what people talk about, whether it's in a couple's context or individual. What's different, of course, is that I don't have time to get to know... <laughs> what's going on. As a psychoanalyst, we take like years sometimes to really get deep in there. Um, on the other hand, when I do my couples work on the show, it's super time limited. Like we have like 18 weeks and, and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. So both end.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I know you've got some time constraints, so I won't pursue this line of questioning too far. If you'd like, we can just get into our last letter, which I think has lots and lots of grist for the mill. Perfect. All right. The subject is crazy liberal aunt. My sister and I have always been opposites. I am the responsible and studious one while she has always been destructive and self-involved. She's also been in a string of abusive relationships. A decade ago, when I moved back to my hometown after a divorce, I didn't have many local friends and started hanging out with her again. Over the years, she became an unreliable, untrustworthy, but fun friend. She's slept with two of my exes and once punched me while drunk. We stopped speaking for a while after that, but ended up seeing each other at family functions and eventually resumed hanging out. Her new boyfriend, Jack, is the worst yet. He's proudly racist, homophobic, and sexist. She doesn't care, especially because he received a large inheritance and can take care of her financially. One night, Jack used a racial slur in front of me, and when I confronted him, he screamed at me. I stopped seeing them socially and avoided Jack at family events. But then my sister had a baby. I wanted to be in my nephew's life, so I tried to tolerate Jack. The other night, I took my boyfriend to their house to hang out for the first time since she had the baby and Jack was drunk. My sister dropped a glass and he screamed at her that she was an idiot over and over again for 30 minutes. Later, he threw the baby monitor at her, yelling, why don't you check on your fucking kid? I was mortified that he was treating her like that, but I've gotten used to the fact that these are the men she chooses, and I'm done trying to save her when she doesn't want to be saved. However, I'm devastated to think that my nephew will grow up in this environment with this as his example of manhood. I didn't say anything that night, but a week later, Jack posted a political rant on Facebook. I responded with a polite counterpoint, to which he called me stupid, to which I responded, I don't care if we disagree on politics. I just hope my nephew doesn't grow up in a house where he thinks it's okay to call the mother of your child an idiot. Immature, probably, but I knew he would delete it immediately. He did. Afterwards, my mother called me, angry that I handled things poorly. Now she's upset with me, and I'm not speaking with Jack or my sister. I'm wondering where to even go from here. My mother says I'm overreacting, that I should still be around them at family events for her sake, that I'm sending her to an early grave, and she's too old to do two of every holiday. She says we are stuck with him, so I need to see the good in him. I disagree, and the thought of never seeing Jack again sounds liberating. But I do feel guilty causing my parents stress and wonder if I'm taking things too far and being stubborn, and if I should just suffer in silence around him for their sake. My larger conflict, though, is because of my nephew. Might I be the only voice of reason in his life? Or is that a fantasy? Do ants really have that much of an impact on nephews? Realistically, will he likely turn out just like his dad? So should I stand my ground and refuse to associate with Jack anymore, or should I continue to be around this hateful, abusive person on holidays for the sake of my parents and the slim possibility that I might have some kind of impact on my nephew's life? Yeah, this one's um, deep, goes deep. I I had a sort of instant curiosity about the letter writer's perspective by the end, so I, I think I know what feels most sort of critical for me to address here, but I'm wondering if there was anything that struck you as being of primary importance here uh, that we should talk about first?
1: Yeah, uh, there are two things that, that seem to me super important. I mean, one is indeed this question of the nephew, uh, of this little being who's obviously coming into the world in a, it's a not an ideal situation where there's potentially a lot of volatility, maybe even violence around him. And how to not abandon this little one? Um, what role can he as the aunt serve in the little one's life? Um, that's one question. And then I thought of the the question that often comes up in my practice: like, what do you do with people who live? I mean, to put it neutrally, very differently from you or Mm mutually people who are troubled by um, violence, um, drinking issues, substance issues, mental illness, um, maybe lack of resources, people who live differently from you and therefore either don't have the privilege of living well or just really live differently, have different um, coordinates of what's a decent life. What do you do? cut ties, or do you try to find um, a way to remain in contact? I mean, there's a big question there, and it's not just a question of what works and what doesn't work, it's a question of um, how do you deal with otherness? How do you deal with things you disagree with, you're repulsed by, you're offended by, you just want to push it out and take a distance and say, not me, I don't want anything to do with it. Or are there other ways to relate to people, feelings, ideologies, ways of living that are different from your own?
0: Yeah, I think the thing that, stood out to me the most, I can appreciate that this letter writer has seemingly been for a while the sort of lone voice of some reason within the family, uh, particularly about Jack. But one thing that did trouble me was, you know, we're talking about a newborn baby who so far the letter writer has seen, you know, his father uh, throw things, scream for uh, half an hour at a time Um, behave pretty threateningly and her concern is not I'm worried he's going to hurt the baby it's I'm worried in 20 years this baby might be a man like his father and that to me I think needs to the letter writer needs to reorient her concern my concern is not how this might shape his character when he is someday an adult but the very real danger he appears to be in now uh, you know all of the behaviors that the letter writer describes those are things that jack felt comfortable doing in front of her uh, and i think at least to me pretty pretty clearly brings up questions of what would he be willing to do to the baby when the baby is crying and it's annoying him and nobody else is around So I think this is less a question of what kind of guy might this baby grow up to be and is my nephew in immediate danger? And I think the question there is an open one. And again, this is not something that I recommend casually or to most letter writers, but I think up to and including the possibility of calling CPS, um, which is not a guarantee, obviously, that everything is going to get fixed, nor even that things are going to get better. um, But it, it should be something that you should be at least thinking of what would need to happen where CPS would have to be involved. Like, is there a line that Jack could cross where I would feel that it was my responsibility to do so? And I think better to start thinking about that now rather than later.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to refrain from talking about the question of calling CPS. Uh, Sure. It's complicated. Yes. Really complicated. It puts, you know, calling, I mean, obviously if there's, literally if there's like violence, then yes, of course, if the kid is being hurt, yes. But um, calling CPS is a complicated thing. It puts CPS in a very um, constrained mandate. I mean, they sort of have to intervene and and it's very rigid and can, Mm it can cause a lot of trouble in the family. So unless it's really necessary, you got to think about it. Yeah,
0: I I think that's absolutely appropriate and makes sense. And and again, I think it makes sense not to say that's what you must do now so much as, you know, your sisters hit you in the past. It it seems like Jack is pretty comfortable throwing things. I, I think you should at least at the back of your mind think what's a level of violent escalation that would require more than just saying something to him on Facebook or not going over to their house anymore. So that's, that's, I think all I want to encourage letter A to think about, but I, I agree. I would not say like, just call them now. They'll fix it. It'll make things good.
1: So one, one of the thoughts I was trying to ponder while I was reading this and, and listening to you is like, what, how can this person, this writer, let's say she's not just abandoning the scene, but she's like trying to remain a presence in this family's life. How can she be a presence both for the nephew, but also for the couple, for her sister and her husband? How can she be a presence that um, brings in um, some stability and Something good that will maybe mitigate the 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 forces that are kind of messing things up over there, and you know the mom is saying, I need to see the good in him okay that's a very simple thing to say, but what is that really how does one see the good in someone who's like being so offensive mm-hmm. I think um certainly what doesn't help and what we've seen happening you know large scale in the country at large is to say you're an idiot and you're bad and you're racist and you're homophobic and you know you suck i mean that's not going to do anything i mean not if she says that to her sister or not if she says that to him it's it's that's not going to do anything on the other hand um if she can find a way to Open a certain, even if it's a benign, like open a dialogue that is less alienating and less polarizing. You know, if she sees him like mad for half an hour yelling, she could ask, like, what's what's going on? What 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 can I do to help? You seem stressed. This must be hard. Who knows what's going on? And in a way, kind of position herself as a non-judgmental, stabilizing person in the family. I mean, there's got to be a lot of stress going on for them to behave this way.
0: Maybe. I don't think it's quite the same as just if you experience a certain amount of stress, you would necessarily scream at someone for half an hour. So I, I would be less likely to advise this letter writer to look to be useful to someone who's screaming obscenities And maybe more thinking about, do I want to leave? You know, do I want to go for a walk? What's my boyfriend doing? Can I ask him for support in that moment? Um, Do I want to go tend to the baby in this moment and see how he's doing um, and just separate myself from somebody who's behaving like Mm -hmm. this? Um, And I think looking for, you know, what are reasonable limits that I can incorporate that don't involve, you know, I think it's unlikely that the letter writer is going to be able to resume that kind of fun but still unreliable friendship she had with her sister for about a decade, where she was sort of aware of her sister's faults, but felt like they were either easy enough to let go of or overlook, or they didn't they they were balanced by the fun they were able to have. And that sort of changed now that she's in this really volatile, bad relationship and has a baby. And so thinking about what's the minimum amount of time that I can spend with them so that I can still see the kid. And maybe this means more offers to babysit than offers to come by. Um, Anything where you're able to spend time alone with your nephew, I think would probably be a good thing. And then that way, when that time is more limited, you can figure out how do I want to choose my battle? So that as I think you were suggesting, I think it's true that Getting into fights with him over Facebook is not going to help you achieve any of your goals, and it's certainly not going to result in in better behavior uh, from him. So anything you can do to mute him on social media, I would support doing. But you can also, I think, say, you know, if your mom says, if you're not always around him, I'd have to do two holidays, you're also allowed to sometimes say, like, I'm not going to spend you know, Earth Day with everyone, and that's fine. No one's going to die if I miss one Thanksgiving or I do something in a fun vacation with my boyfriend or go stay with his family. That's also something you're perfectly entitled to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking more, you know, my my natural inclination is to think about, like, what does this family need? Like, there's there seems to be kind of a crisis brewing. What does this family need to be able to stabilize but, you know, that she doesn't have to be the therapist, but th- that's just, I guess, my natural inclination is like, what is the intervention that, th- that will help? Yeah, and I guess to that
0: qu- question, uh, you know, we do know a little bit about the sister's reaction, which has been pretty consistently, I don't want any of your input, I don't want any of your suggestions. And we know a little bit about how the mother's sort of response is, don't make waves, like, ignore what Jack does or pretend that it's good, that's what I need from you. Uh, but I'm curious, the letter writer mentioned briefly that her boyfriend was there for this, but not anything about what he said or did or how he felt about it. Um, and presumably, since she mentions her parents, her her father's also still around. So I'm just wondering, are either of them slightly more amenable to reasonable conversation or to finding out useful ways to try to minimize uh, the like damage of Jack's outbursts? I don't know. But like, is your father also slightly concerned and is he someone you could talk to who would at least understand you know i might sometimes need to not come to every single family party just because my goal is not to blow up at jack and make things worse and if i don't think i can do that i'm gonna go or if there's other siblings or cousins that um you might be able to talk to who would be a little more receptive than your mother and your sister uh, that would certainly be another angle i would suggest but um I think it really makes sense to limit the amount of time you spend around Jack, both for your own well-being um, and and just also because uh, I, I don't think that he's going to benefit much from your uh, interventions. But, but yeah, with an eye towards seeing your nephew as much as you can, I think that is good. I don't know that I have a guarantee for how you'll be able to strike that balance. And again, I say this as somebody who, doesn't see my nephews you know my my sister endangers her children and I don't have a relationship with my family and that's sad um, and one of the things that I have to kind of remember is there are a lot of people who are in danger and I can't always do anything about it um, and so if there's something useful and effective and safe I can do I try to find a way to do it and if not then the work I have to do is just on managing my own emotions around that kind of Inability to control, and and I really, you have all my support and sympathy in that. It's not easy to do.
1: Yeah, I, and also to add that being kind of a, a stable, sane person in a child's life, even if it's just in the form of being an aunt or an uncle, could be a lot. I mean, people in my practice will remember, like the one family member that was kind of the voice of stability and sanity that really helped them when things
0: were kind of mad at home. Yeah. And, and I think there's so often really difficult, volatile, painful homes that a, a child can grow up in that might not rise to the level of such ostentatious abuse that it requires like external intervention, but that are still really awful to grow up mm-hmm. in. And that might very well be this family. And again, that doesn't mean you're the only thing standing in between this child and total ruin, but Potentially you could be a real pillar of solidity and peacefulness and affection in this kid's life. And so there's not, I can't obviously offer anything like a guarantee or say, if you stick around, you'll totally turn his life around and he'll credit you with that. And 30 years from now, he'll say, basically, you were my parents and thank you for saving my life. But that absolutely there's potential for real good and um, that whatever you know, to, without risking your own safety if if things escalate, but to whatever extent you can stay present in your nephew's life, I think he will really value and need that. And that would be a really good thing if you're able to do it. Ah, well, thank you so much for making time. I realize that we've already taken up a little bit more than than we had hoped to. so uh, I want to be able to release you back into your own afternoon. Um, But uh, thank you again. I really appreciate it. I
1: appreciate you inviting me. Thank you very much.
0: Before I let the rest of you go, I have a quick lightning round, which has been helpfully uh, prefaced with, I need some little advice. This is a very small problem, which is really nice because we just dealt with a big, painful one. uh, And I think it's nice to, to round us off with questions about old flags. I fly an older-style rainbow flag during Pride Month every year. I've also been trying in the last few years to stop purchasing unnecessary items in the interest of reducing my carbon footprint. My current flag, despite being almost 10 years old, is still in excellent shape. I'm reluctant to replace it with a newer design, especially since most flags are made out of synthetic material that uses fossil fuels in production. However, I also don't want to give the impression that I'm trans-exclusionary. I especially don't want it to make anyone feel slighted or bummed out when it's meant to be a celebratory and inclusive symbol. What is your take on the older rainbow flag? Is it too outdated? No, this is totally fine. Keep your flag. Uh, it is. There's not like a mandate that like, you got to get the update or else it's like not going to be compliant with modern faggots like... It is compliant with all of the types of faggots. Uh, I've never been to a pride parade where there weren't like a pretty wide mix of different types of flags. So, uh, you know, again, just like, I I don't know anyone who would see the like classic rainbow flag and think, oh, that's like a dog whistle for being gender critical or trans exclusionary. Um, So keep your pride flag. It sounds great. Uh, I also agree that all pride flags You can just like feel the microplastics and like the sheen of oil on them. They're always made with the absolute worst garbage materials. And they always need to be ironed, which is such a shame because our our people don't seem to iron nearly as much as we should, including myself. Um, But yeah, keep your flag. Your flag is great. Do not worry about it. Do not overthink it. That's it. That's all I've got on those flags. Thanks so much for listening. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form. Or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Since the letter writer's question is, should I try to rekindle the only relationships I have here? I think trying, yes, you can and and I think should. But... Before you can know whether or not that's possible, I I think you do need to unfortunately acknowledge that they had hurt your feelings and ask them what's going on. Which I realize, especially at that age, just feels like if someone's hurt my feelings, I don't want to open myself up to the risk of more pain by asking why. But I would start by going back to those two people you call your best friends. And maybe ask them separately, because it sounds like the last time the three of you got together, there was a sort of two on one dynamic where you were outnumbered. And I would just I would encourage you to say, obviously, if you can't help me out after surgery, you know, you can't I'll make alternate arrangements. But it it did really make me sad. And I would like to know if there's something that I've done or said that hurt or offended you, because if so, I'd love to try to work on it. And if there's something else going on, I'd like to know that, too. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate dot com forward slash mood.